We have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to my dad and to Pete Seeger. And I got a responsibility to Bob Dylan. I got a responsibility to George. Those are big, big shadows, you know, and big shoes to stand in. And thank God, just thank God that we've had them. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people you've got to include in that group, but it's still a very small group that did it and that, that showed us the way. Once a musical tradition has been around for decades and decades, it, there's going to be a moment where it is handed to the next generation. You know, there was the symbolic handing of the torch from, you know, Pete Seeger to Bob Dylan, and people can't wait to grab the torch and run with it. That's what makes Newport important. Those are the times and places where the torch gets to burn brighter. And it's also where the torch, you know, where Joan Baez gets to say, hey, you all here, I'm handing you the light. Okay, I'm handing you the light. You know, that's a big thing. That doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen sometimes unless somebody brings people together to make it happen. The passing of the torch over the decades and the people that make it possible for that to happen. Ben Jaffe, creative director of the Preservation Hall in New Orleans and member of the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. Both Ben and Prez Hall have become an integral part of Newport over the last decade, but that relationship has roots that go way back. Ben's parents, Sandra and Alan, had a connection with Newport founder George Ween that's as old as Newport folk itself. In fact, it was the Jaffees that were behind George bringing his vision of the festival idea to New Orleans, helping him create its Jazz and Heritage Festival, which you may have learned about in season one of this podcast. I'm Carmel Holt. We'll learn today that that is just one of the many connections that have endured from Newport folks' beginnings in the late 50s all the way through to present day under the direction of Jay Sweet. We'll not only dig into those historical connections, but some personal history as well, all woven into the fabric of the six decades and counting of the Newport Folk Festival. Welcome to episode two of Festival Circuit, Newport Folk. It became a utopia. I refer to George as sometimes he's my uncle, sometimes he's my grandfather, sometimes he's my dad. Once again, Preservation Hall's Ben Jaffe. Sometimes he's my boss. It's a very special relationship. I've recognized that for a long time. I've, I've, I, he's known me since, well, before I was born. He and my father knew each other, so it really goes back to my beginning. When I think about the beginning of Newport and I think about how it coincided with my parents just coming out of college and being in Philadelphia on the East Coast. And there was this um, New Orleans music jazz revival happening on the East Coast and West Coast. There was also the this influence of Keith Seeger and, and the Weavers. Travel yonder well, I traveled here and then I That was a big part of my parents' identity. Inside of all of this was this thing, Newport, that was happening. It was recognizing a community of musicians and a community of artists and a style of music and a, a, a really a way of life. A lot of things were happening. A lot of things were being created all at once. I mean, just the, the idea of, of a music festival. 
alone, just an outdoor music festival. Put a piano outside. I mean, that was unheard of. Uh, you know, what do you mean? How how do you, how do people hear you? You know, it can only go so far. I mean, if it wasn't one of these designed band shells, you know, all of these things were were sort of emerging at the same time. The the ability to have outdoor concerts, to you know, amplify these outdoor concerts loud enough you know, for audiences to people having transportation to get to events. You always find, you know, one, two, three, a handful of people who are at the center of these moments. And George was obviously not just the center of this moment, but the spark and you know, along with Pete Seeger, they were the, the glue and the inspiration. What I've learned doing what I do at Preservation Hall is there can be the cultural inspiration, the, the the creative inspiration, and then there has to be somebody taking care of business. And when that person taking care of business has the sensibility and the understanding of a musician, it adds another layer of consciousness and awareness to the process. As Ben shared with us, George Ween is not only a festival organizer and promoter, he's an accomplished musician and pianist as well. During his time serving in the Army during World War II, George learned in very real ways how valuable being a musician could be while facing bigotry and anti-Semitism that he would experience, witness, and fight against throughout his life. I won't say it was a great education. It was an experience that affected your thinking of how to relate to people. Because I came from a nice Jewish background in Massachusetts. You know, we're nice people. Next thing I know, I'm in the army. We're not such nice people. I had a fight, not physically fight, although we nearly had physical fights. They came to me one day and they said, Southern Custer said that I'm making it tough for all, for all the Jewish kids in the outfit. I said, why are you telling me that? That's your problem, not my problem. We'd go out in the field with 90 degrees in Oklahoma, and every 10-minute break, they'd say, Wayne and Tannenbaum, will you set up the equipment for this the next 10-minute break? Wayne and Tannenbaum, will you set up the equipment for this thing? Well, Wayne and Tannenbaum were both Jewish guys. And I finally said at the third tennis break, I said, anybody, anybody else here that wants to set up a break besides Wayne and Tannenbaum? I was on company punishment for talking back to Sergeant, whatever his name was. And what saved my life was I played piano in the, uh, we had a band that played at officers' dances. And while I was doing it, somebody punished me. I ran a fever of 104 degrees and had to go to the uh, infirmary. And the major saw me going in an ambulance. He says, <laughs> he says, what's the matter, Wayne? Is the, he knew me because I played piano at the officer's dance. He says, Wayne, what's the matter? The uh, training getting tough for you? I said, sure, the training's no problem, but this company punishment is killing me. I got out of the office, I was off a of company punishment. <laughs> After the Army, George Ween continued playing piano and in 1950 opened the Storyville Jazz Club in Boston. In 1954, George struck up a partnership with Elaine and Louis Lorillard and started the precursor to the Newport Folk Festival, Newport Jazz. Well, the Jazz Festival had many different aspects. We had a gospel afternoon in addition to the evening concerts. We had a tap dance program, you know. So I was playing in my club, and 
I had in my club people like Pete Seeger and uh, I had uh, Odetta and uh, other different uh, folk groups once in a while, which was sort of like what was happening in New York in, in the clubs. I said, why can't we do a folk afternoon? And then I found out that it was so popular. I had Pete, I had uh, uh, the, the Weavers, I had, uh, of course, the Kingston Trio. was so popular, I said, look, this shouldn't be an afternoon at the Fall Jazz Festival, it should be a festival all by itself. So I decided to have two festivals, the Folk Festival and the Jazz Festival. Took off like a bat out of hell. Albert Grossman was in managing Odetta, and I played Odetta in my club, and I hung out every night with Albert. He was a very engaging guy, a brilliant guy. And so I said, look, if we're going to do a folk festival, you know more about this than I do. You have to be the producer. I'll make it happen, and you can produce it. And uh, the first two years, Albert produced it, and we did many of the things I wanted because he knew exactly what I wanted, and he could deliver it. Bob Gibson, and that was the year Joan Byers made her appearance. Nobody knew Joni. She was a kid in Harvard Square, and she was the immediate star of the festival. She took off like mad. All my trials, Lord, soon be over. Those two years were good. And we had a problem in 1960, a riot at the Jazz Festival, and the festival was canceled. And I was out of Newport in 61, but I went back in 62, because jazz was my world. So I put on a jazz festival in 63. I said, we'll bring the folk festival back. That's when I went to Pete Seeger. Albert was too much of a businessman for the folk people, because the folk people really weren't that hard-nosed business. Albert was really a ruthless and very brilliant businessman. He had been my partner. I had a break up with Albert, which cost me a lot of money, because he became far more successful financially than I did. But I liked Albert, but I, I couldn't take his lifestyle. So when I went to Pete, Pete said, I'll come back, but everybody has to work for $50 a night. I said, great. Only Pete Seeger could do that. Nobody else could get that kind of respect. And that's when the festival really took off. I didn't produce it because the board produced it. Pete Arrow and uh, Mike Seeger and uh, Gene Ritchie and people like that, they picked the talent. Whoever we asked to come came, including people like Janis Joplin. Of course, Peter, Paul, and Mary took off. They were very big, and they were involved with the festival. And it became, in a short period, a utopia of what the world could be if people really understood and loved each other. When George talks about the idea of Newport as a utopia, part of that stemmed from working as a collective, giving its board of artists and Newport folk community members a voice to help decide the direction of each year's festival. 
Later on, we'll hear how that model of collaborative directorship was absent for a time and then, as most of the founding ideals of Newport did, came back with an even more unified vision. But now, let's hear from someone who is a member of the Newport Folk Board in the 1960s, Judy Collins. I was on the board with with Ronnie Gilbert and Peter Yarrow and George, of course, George. We, We met at George's house all the time. And Joyce was, his wife was so wonderful, I adored her. So I, we met in, in New York, of course, and talked about what should go on at the festival and what shouldn't. And I know that there was a big kerfuffle when Dylan went electric. I don't think it was as much of a kerfuffle as people would have made it out to be. I don't think that Pete was as angry as he seemed. I think his, his feathers were a little ruffled. Frankly, this was happening, and it was going to happen, and it might as well have happened at Newport. Where better, really? Because it could make history that way. And of course, I was in love with Dylan anyway, just with his music, not with him. I was in love with the song, and they were what really, really turned me on. How many roads must a man walk down before he As a member of the board, Judy Collins was super influential in choosing who would be booked at Newport Folk. And as she'll tell us, it was Judy who pushed for Newport to also become a space that would welcome exciting new talent, which ultimately would lead to introducing the folk world to two of its most important and iconic singer-songwriters. I had discovered, well, I hadn't discovered him. Leonard discovered me in 1966, and a mutual friend of ours, Mary Martin, had put us together. And she called me and said, uh, Leonard wants to come over and, and uh, he wants to play you his new songs. And I realized later on in life, of course, that of course he wanted to play me the new songs because I was the only one in the village who wasn't writing my own songs. I mean, who was he going to play them for, Bob Dylan? I don't think so. So I had gotten to know him and recorded Suzanne and another of his songs and had become completely enamored of his music. I just was floored by it. In 1967, a year later, I was called in the middle of the night by Al Cooper, who put Joni Mitchell on the phone, and she sang me both sides now on the, on the phone. I've looked at clouds from both sides now. And so that spring, in our meetings at the um, Newport board, I began to explore with the rest of the board the idea of doing an afternoon of new young singers. And I pushed and pushed and pushed, and I got a lot of resistance. Nobody wanted it because they were then in the phase of let's do old, old, old timers. Let's not do any of this new stuff. I have a feeling I got a little burned by the Dylan experience, and I succeeded in there giving me an afternoon concert for young, new folk singers. And and I called Joni and I called Leonard. I said, you have to be there. It was not a big show, and it was in the afternoon. So I don't think it got as much attention as it might have, but it got attention in the long run because of the fact that Joni and Leonard started an affair, I think right then and there. Broken hearts abounded with Leonard. <laughs> like a 
wakes you up with sweets He takes you up streets And the rain comes down Sidewalk markets locked up tight And umbrellas bright on a gray So, as Judy Collins told us, If you were an artist coming to Newport Folk in the 1960s, it was a big opportunity to be introduced to a wider listening audience. But it was also a chance to connect with, collaborate with, and be inspired by an influential and hugely varied group of musicians. As Phil Cook shares, this had a particularly profound effect on a woman who first performed at Newport in 1964, who has since become one of the most beloved and essential parts of the folk family and its lineups. The matriarch of the festival, clearly. Mavis Staples. She is still a powerful, strong, reoccurring presence at the festival. And, you know, that festival and how the barriers are lowered between people when you're back in that. You're all kind of on a more even ground together. And so, I mean, I really met Mavis for the first time at Newport, which was beautiful and awesome. I mean, the Staples singers, you know, Pops and and Cleotha and Mavis were among the earliest African-American performers at the festival, at the folk festival. That goes back so far in thinking about Mavis as just a teenager and that, you know, she rode over in the van sitting next to Johnny Cash in the van with the Staples going to the festival from the hotel. And she talks about going to a house party that night. And, you know, all Joan Baez and Bob Dylan made her, like said, you have to come to this. You and Cleo have to come. So they show up. And they're, and they're at this house party and they stayed up all night long. And there were so many guitars in the room and the whole room was singing all night long. And she said for her, how powerful experience was that many years ago. You know what I mean? 60 years ago, how that communal spirit and, and that was there, you know, is palpable then. And how that opened her eyes up because they had largely performed in churches and at like gospel programs up until that moment. After that festival, you know, the Staples started covering Bob Dylan songs. They started covering other folk songs and started actually be, you know, this coincided with them in the civil rights march and everything. So that also just reminds me of that, like how long that lineage has continued and that it's still present. Those early days of Newport were instrumental in introducing musicians to a new audience, as well as highlighting those from rural America, many of whom had fallen into obscurity. Once again, Judy Collins. Some of the most stellar moments of my experience with Newport are the Staples family. I was crazy about them. I was crazy about Sun House. Yes, I get up in the morning. Be feeling so sick and bad. I was able to get drunk with Mississippi John Hurt and sing his songs with him and listen to these marvelous, marvelous performers who, in some cases, had never really had a chance to perform in any kind of large venue or be appreciated on some large scale. And, you know, it makes you feel when you're involved with it for that long. It make you, makes you feel like every place is like that, but of course it wasn't. There was no question of the importance and impact Newport Folk was having on the musicians and fans who attended and the greater culture at large. But in spite of that, Newport Folk would be forced to go on indefinite hiatus in 1970 due to issues with riots at the Newport Jazz Festival and financial concerns. 
But George Ween's work and vision was far from done. During the years that Newport Folk and Jazz went dormant, he continued to book and promote concerts around the world. And then something truly incredible happened. A seed of an idea that had been planted in the early years when George Ween and Ben Jaffe's parents first met finally came to fruition, bringing to life another legendary and hugely important music festival. Once again, Preservation Hall's Ben Jaffe. Well, my parents got the call to come to Newport in the early 60s, and that was when they first met George. And up until then, it was this, you know, they only read about Newport, you know, in the newspapers and heard about it through their their friend network and the musician network. But it was as big, it was the biggest news of the time. You know, this was, this is a huge thing. The top musicians got together and decided to put on a a festival that celebrated regional musics. That was it. That's, that's, that's huge. I mean, just the idea of, of pulling it all together is, is amazing. And the Preservation Hall Band met George in Newport and that relationship led to this idea of a Newport festival taking place in New Orleans. And that eventually became Jazz Fest, became what we all know as the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. The idea though was planted and and experienced at Newport. It was, wow, if this can happen here, all of the elements that go into making Newport happen live right down the street in New Orleans. So this is something that we should explore. One thing led to another, and with the success of the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, the Newport Jazz Festival returned in 1981. And by 1985, Newport Folk was ready for a comeback. Meet music consultant and member of the Newport Folk staff in the mid-80s, Carrie Estrin. Tom Rush and I were friends. He was promoting his own concert at Symphony Hall, and he asked me if I would do merch. And I said, oh yeah, of course. And I watched the whole show and everyone was stunning, but there was this shy performer there. The guy on stage that was a little bit shy came up to me and said hi, and and that was Bob Jones who had been with George ever since the beginning and who produced the Newport Folk Festivals. I think Bob was recreating a community of people that we had listened to, and that's how it was. It was fabulous. It was like old home week. I mean, we had Arlo Guthrie. And I don't want to die Just want to ride on my boat Just last week, the other day. Judy Collins, so many fabulous folk artists that we all knew, knew and loved. And it was a scene. It was wonderful. And people were excited. I mean, here we all were again at Newport with all these names that were dearly beloved. So yeah, it was great. I think Ben and Jerry's were our sponsors those first two years. And there was no food backstage, but there was a lot of ice cream. <laughs> So it was hot. We all ate a lot of ice cream at one of the wrap parties. Ben and Jerry actually came down and scooped ice cream for all of us at the Breakers Mansion. (laughs) And then I remember Ben and Jerry and how exciting it was to, you know, know that they were there. And there was just such a good vibe about people taking care of each other and taking care of the earth and, you know, a, a good company who was sponsoring, which is rare. That's Emily Saliers of the Indigo Girls. We'll hear more about where the era of corporate sponsorships of Newport would lead in just a bit 
as Judy Collins told us about how she helped to bring in new voices to Newport folk that also laid the groundwork for what would come to pass in the mid-80s revival of the festival. The initial lineups focused on Newport's first generation of artists, but soon an emerging group of young singer-songwriters would share the stages of Newport with those who had inspired them. At the center of that scene was the Indigo Girls. I mean, when we started, we were so young in 1990, and Joan Baez was there, and the Roaches were there, who had been a huge influence on us. If you go down to Joan, of course, was a big influence on us and sung with us. And, you know, so we kind of, we started out in this uh, really sweet spot with who had been the, I guess, one of the most pivotal people in folk music and and at Newport, really. It was also just the whole idea of being able to see so many great, I mean, every, every year there was amazing stuff to see and it was the whole community of that. You know, I got to see Joan Armour trading. I got to see Sweet Honey in the Rock. I got to see the staple singers. A couple of years I went when we weren't playing and saw other people. So for me, it's uh, as a fan, it's just, I don't even know how to describe it, you know. I was like literally, I think, afraid of Joan Armatrading. I wanted to say hey to her so bad. And like, we just listened to her music incessantly. It meant so much to me. And so like Amy was saying, as a fan, it was almost, it, no, it was as powerful as being able to play there. Just getting to hear some of our favorite artists. I mean, I listened to Nancy Griffith albums over and over. I had her on a cassette tape, you know, in the 80s. And and then you get to hear them play and the Roaches, as Amy said, who were so influential. And it's cool because now Lucy Wainwright Roach, uh, who's Suzy Roach's daughter and Loudon Wainwright's daughter, she sings on all our albums and we tour with her all the time. And there's sort of like a generational thing, which is super cool. But And I also remember how beautiful it was to stand on that stage. I will never forget what it looks like like felt like to look at that sea of people and the water and the boats. The majority of the first 10 years that we played were kind of a very similar vibe, you know, all the time. And then it really started evolving into other kinds of music and stuff, which I think is great. I went to doctor, I went to the mountains, I looked to the children, I drank from the fountains. There's more this is Festival Circuit, Newport Folk. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Festival Circuit, Newport Folk. I'm Carmel Holt. After its return in 1985, Newport Folk endured at Fort Adams, but by the mid-2000s, the festival was in need of a vision that could merge its rich history with a progressive approach that would allow it to be sustainable and accessible to future generations. We were just with Amy and Emily of the Indigo Girls talking about Ben and Jerry's and how nice it was to be at a festival without big corporate sponsorship. But as time went on, once again, financial struggles came to Newport. 
which led to the need for bigger, more mainstream sponsorships taking center stage. And that, in turn, started to affect the feel of the festival for everyone, including and perhaps most importantly, the artists. Here's Jim James. The first time that we did it was Monsters of Folk, I think, because back then it was still the Dunkin' Donuts Newport Folk Festival. We were all shocked at how terrible it was. Because that was before uh, Jay had come in and, and take, taken it over. And it was, I think they said it was nearly dead. You know, like that might have been the last year or whatever. Because there were like Dunkin' Donut signs everywhere, you know, like even on the stage and stuff. And like, no offense to Dunkin' Donuts, <laughs> people like Dunkin' Donuts or whatever. It was just like everywhere you looked, it was the Dunkin' Donuts Newport Folk Festival. It wasn't the Newport Folk Festival. It was the Dunkin' Donuts Newport Folk Festival. It was fucked up. I talked to or met, I can't remember if I met Jay right around then, and we talked and, you know, shared our love for the festival's past, I guess you'd say, and for the, the grounds of the festival and the spirit of the festival and both of our uh, admiration for George and what, what he'd done over the years with the festival, you know, and we're just feeling like, I mean, Jay, the most you know felt the most personal calling to get involved and uh, talk to George and you know I just feel like Jay kind of rounded up several of us and we talked about it a lot and we're like this is too too important of a festival to let it go down the the drains or let it be co-opted forever by uh, Dunkin Donuts so we uh we just kind of formed a coalition and Jay uh you know just got a handful of people together and we just started saying, like, let's make this a special thing, you know, and, and I really feel like from the ground up, you know, everything to the font choice and the, and the branding and, and all that stuff that Jay and his team work so hard on that now when you see Newport Folk, it feels forever. You know, it feels classic again. It feels the way it should feel when you see the, the logo and you see the font and, you, you know, you see it pop up on social media or on a, on a picture or whatever and you see it. And before you even see an artist's name, you're stoked. You know, you're like, I can't wait to get back to Newport Folk. I don't know who's going to be there, but I know it's going to be great. As Jim mentioned, his 2005 performance with Connor Oberst and M. Ward not only helped spark the project Monsters of Folk, it was also the beginning of a necessary new era for the Newport Folk Festival. Here's how Executive Director Jay Sweet remembers the moment. Somehow, Jim and Connor and M. Ward, and I don't think it was actually called the Monsters of Folk at that point. It was just kind of this, I think, give Connor some credit. I think it was Connor saying... If I got a slot, I, I want to do this with some other younger people because there weren't a whole lot of younger artists. But it was basically what would later become Monsters of Folk. And I'd like to think that some of Monsters of Folk came out of this moment where someone put a couch on the stage. If Jim James and M. Ward were doing a song, Connor would go and sit on the couch. Instead of walking off the stage and dramatically coming back, it was like they would just sit on the couch. That was kind of off on stage left. And I remember being asked to sit on the couch. Patrick, the drummer for My Morning Jacket, was there, like right in full view of lots of, not lots, but not not a lot of fans, but a couple of fans. And I remember Jim saying, like, this is not what a young artist envisions when they think of all the historical moments and the long history of Newport. It was a letdown. It was, it was, uh, it wasn't even close to expectations. It was sad. And right then and there, it was kind of this weird cosmic thing of this guy who I'd met a few times, Jim James, knowing my passion and knowing his 
passion and 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 his being a student of the game and understanding the historical reasons for why he chose to do Newport. You know, if you look at the festival as kind of the oldest artist, every artist has a part of their career they're probably not super proud of in hindsight. That helped them really hone their craft. So I, I look at it as like, yeah, look, it was it was probably necessary. But yeah, Jim was very much a founding inspiration because we were sitting on a couch and we were laughing like this how this is really fun. Like this couch thing is really fun of like it's just different and it's cool and it's super collaborative. And there's three people who have these kind of versioning solo careers, right? Who all decided to to put their egos aside and come out and do this song swap, hi-fi, laughing, and taking none of it very seriously. It was just, it was awesome. The only people that made it feel like what it should be or what it was from the 50s and 60s was this band. That was the highlight to me. Yeah, that was pretty magical. As Jay mentions, though it was hard times for the festival, the down years of the mid-2000s ultimately resulted in a renaissance a few years later. After selling and then regaining control of his own company, George Ween decided to make a change. The company came back to me. Newport came back to me when they went bankrupt. And there were two people working for them that I kept. I said, I said I'm going to keep Jay Sweden, Jason Nolane. Jason now works for Wynn Marsalis over there at Jazz at Lincoln Center, and Jay works with me. And But I kept Jay because I said, this guy has talent. I, I, I'm not that fond of him personally, but he has talent, and I'm going to give him a chance. And he's he came through like gangbusters. Jay is a brilliant guy. I love Jay. He had to become part of our family. And now he and I are very, very close. And I, I love him very much. In a flurry of emotion after seeing 2007, I wrote 18 single space pages of what should be done, needed to be done, and it was way outside the norm. It, it was the opposite of, of any business treatise of, of how to turn money into doing it. So I wrote these 18 pages. I met with George Ween, who admittedly didn't like me and admittedly shouldn't have liked me at all. And I just said, you don't have to like me. And I just think these festivals that you created are too important to the world. And here are 18 pages on why and what should be done. 2009 was the 50th anniversary, and this incredible gentleman named Bob Jones. Bob Jones and his family really helped just keep it literally from imploding. So between George and the and the Jones family, I just I, I can't thank them enough for doing some really hard work. When your bosses are Pete Seeger, and George Ween and Bob Jones, you know you're like, okay, I'm the the fourth musketeer kind of, and they were like, yeah, whatever, shut up, stay in the corner. I remember George being like, okay, well, listen, I got your 18 pages. I should probably kick you to the street, but you seem like you give a shit. So if you can do something with it, it's the 50th anniversary. You have one shot. So, so George was like, if the 50th anniversary of the granddaddy of all American music festivals, if it feels right at the end of it, you and I should talk about trying to keep it alive. If not, we're going to end it. It's a perfect thing. We'll end the Newport Folk Festival. will end on its 50th anniversary. I sat down with Pete Seeger and I said, okay, man, this is like the 50th anniversary of the oldest festival. How are we going to kind of turn it around? I remember George, he's so good. George, George said, yeah, that the only reason that you had any success is because it was the 50th. There's no way you could replicate it on the 51st. Which was basically saying, I want you to still do this for basically no money. So then I did the 51st and it was actually more successful than the 50th. 2009, uh, I booked half of it and Bob Jones, um, the kind of amazing stalwart, booked the other half of it. And then in 2010, I booked 
80% of it and Bob booked 20% of it. And in 2011, it was me. Since its 50th anniversary in 2009, Newport Folk has once again become one of the most exciting music festivals in the country. Through the efforts of Jay Sweet, Jim James, and others, and under the continued guardianship of George Ween, Newport revitalized itself by returning to its roots and indeed closer to the original vision of the festival as a utopia. As it was in the 1960s, Newport became a nonprofit venture in 2011. The development of its Newport Festival's foundation allows it to avoid the corporate sponsorship that Jim and Jay discussed and puts into action the idea that part of the festival's mission is granting youth access to music education and instruments. Once again, Jay Sweet. The nonprofit focus for a long time was on the artists. I'm creating a, a nonprofit in order to get artists that can't get paid because what they're saying is against the societal norms of, of those times. So the original nonprofit was to actually put money into artists' pockets. That was the original focus of it. When Newport folk in particular started becoming a, quote, success, and as a nonprofit, we started having a very small surplus, the idea is, well, what we're a nonprofit. What do we do with a surplus? My team felt very strongly that we didn't get into this to save it for a rainy day because there's too much that is needed to be done right now. So there was an incredible, incredible compromise made with the board, the people that supported George, to then work with my staff and my team that believed we were doing this and we needed to make some changes right now. Think of where the arts are in this country and think of even where the arts are after a pandemic, where... The easiest budget to cut is teaching a kid how to play an instrument, because what value does that have? You're better off just learning how to code. That's the that's the thought. And I just don't believe that. And you know who else I don't think believes that? The Christian Mathensons, the tallest man on earth. Here's Christian Matson. I think the original feeling is like I just have to do this, you know, because I found it when I was a teenager and trying to look at this crazy world. And then I listen to so much music and feel. Like, wow, this world exists and I could play an instrument too. I can also write a song. Music is, you know, some way to you know, straighten out a curly brain. I've been touring in America for a while, but I only heard of this, you know, this special place, Newport Folk Festival. So I think I was, I was big eyed. I, I felt very comfortable straight away. I go there and I, you know, I fill up the engine with, you know, with love and remembering why I do this. A lot of touring is about being on an album cycle and, playing different markets, and it all can feel a little, like, mathematical sometimes, but there it's actually just so much about the music and a lot of surprises. I never knew I was a lover Just cause I steal the things you had Just cause I focus while we're dancing on Just cause I offered you a ride Once again, Jay Sweet. The Chris Thiele's the Andrew Birds, the Brittany Howards. I, I don't think those people feel that it was a waste of time to go commune with an instrument and spend countless hours and hours losing, using that instrument as a way to express being a child or, or growing up. The minute you walk into a middle school in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or a school that doesn't have a roof in Puerto Rico um, from a hurricane after two years, um, and you see kids look at a brand new guitar, ukulele, trumpet. You think I'm getting emotional? 
when you look at the ability for a child to have access to a instrument is at its lowest point. Whose job is that? If you've been following this story, it's clear that the people of Newport Folk have already answered that larger question, whose job is that? This has become an essential part of the idea of Newport as a utopia, a community, not just a festival, that has taken the idea of building on the past and ensuring future generations of artists to a year-round endeavor of supporting and funding music education and opportunities for kids. And at the festival itself, creating lineups that keep those conversations and collaborations going between generations of artists, continuing the thread of musical history going on its stages. This bridge between the past, the present, and the future has provided some of the most unexpected and special surprises throughout the years. Here's Margot Price. It was the second year I was at Newport, and I was doing an interview with Rolling Stone. Like, my career had kind of finally just taken off, and I was in the middle of this interview, and I got a text message on my phone, and it was a friend of mine who was playing in uh, Texas Gentleman, and he said, hey, uh, can you come over here really quickly within the next like 20, 30 minutes because we're backing up Chris Christopherson and Patti Smith was going to sing on me and Bobby McGee, but she's stuck in traffic. So we need somebody. And I just like ended the interview. I ran over to the quad stage and quickly went into his tent and they were like, all right, we're going to play the song, you know, like in the country way, the way that Chris like always played it. And then at the end, we want you to come in and like vamp and do the Janice thing. And I was like, say no more. I've got it. You know, Chris didn't know who I was when I when I got there, when I got backstage. And when I when I started singing that part, he just looked at me and his eyes lit up and he smiled so big. And he just gave me a huge hug at the end of the set. And I was crying. I mean, it was just like the most surreal collaboration that I'd ever had maybe one of the you know maybe ever in my life it was one of those moments that was like I I can't believe this is happening and one of my friends hit me up and she's like you're trending on Twitter (laughs) so I've stayed really close friends with Chris and his family and I've performed with him probably five other times after that so yeah that was (laughs) that was a really special moment Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose Nothing ain't worth nothing, but it's free Here's another example of how powerful it is when the legends of Newport and today's rising stars come together. Here's Brittany Howard. I love Mavis, and I love that almost every time I've been to the festival, I see Mavis. adore her. Oh my God, she is a national treasure. The funny thing about Mavis is you walk up to her and she just starts talking to you like she knows you. And that's where it begins. The next thing I know, we're singing, uh, I'll take you there, you know, <laughs> like together. That bass line was sampled on this little cassette tape I have. It was like only hip hop beats. And it was just the instrumental tape. I don't know where I found it. But when I was like, I don't know, in kindergarten, that uh, bass line would be on one of those songs. So I loved the stable singers before I even knew who they were. For a moment, consider hearing Brittany Howard talk about loving the staple singers before she was even old enough to understand who they were and the trail that the staple singers and Mavis had blazed so that Brittany could share that stage with Mavis. 
This is the kind of connection of personal and cultural history that manifests and builds into modern day history at Newport. Once again, this harkens back to the earliest days and vision for the festival as a safe haven for deeply meaningful moments, outspoken songs of protest, and social and racial justice. Once again, Jay Sweet. The event that Pete Seeger and George Ween created was because at that point, Pete had been blacklisted, was still blacklisted. His music was not to be played on the radio. Pete was like, well, there's one place where they can't really stop the message of truth to power, equality, whether it be racial, social, sexual. Well, there's one place you can't do, can't, you can't stop that live yet. And so what George and Pete created was kind of, I've said it before, is the kind of island of misfit musicians. It was the people that couldn't get played on the radio. Brought all the way to this island, off of an island in the smallest state in the Union, right within earshot of the 1% of the 1% of the richest people in America, to put this island of misfit musicians that did not fit the mold of what is, quote, popular. And they used the term festival as a celebration of the antithesis of the working music business engine. Skip ahead, one of the biggest driving economic forces of the music industry are festivals. I don't think what happens at Newport now is what people think of when they think of the word festival now. That's the word that gets dropped the most. And and then I think the word folk has taken on a connotation that was, again, created by Pete, wasn't about a genre of music in many respects, because there were blues and we've had Janis Joplin and the folk was for the people. For the people. As we've heard today, Newport folk is not about adhering to one type of music or tradition. Its history shows us that Newport folk has, since its inception, been about building a community of musicians, fans, staff, and volunteers that celebrate one another's creative expression and about creating a more loving and just world always with an eye on the future and respect for the past. In other words, a utopia. Speaking of utopia, on episode three of Festival Circuit, we'll focus on the uniquely collaborative spirit that has become one of the most magical elements of Newport for fans and artists alike. We'll hear from members of the Folk family about some of Newport's most legendary and memorable collaborations, from the thrill of being part of them to the joy of witnessing them. For now, Let's leave the last word to Preservation Hall's Ben Jaffe. I remember coming to George. I was in New York and I asked if I could come over and see him. He was asking me, well, you know, well, what are you guys doing? What are you working on? And I said, well, you know, George, you know, I'm working on this thing. I'm, I'm starting to take the band into, you know, a, a new space. It's, it's a little unfamiliar, but it's very familiar to me. But, you know, we're, we're, we're sitting in with, you know, Dave Matthews or I'm making a record and we're going to have Tom Waits on it and, you know, Pete Seeger's going to sing a song and, uh, you know, Brandy Carlisle's going to be on it with us. And and he just shook his head and he, he couldn't believe it and he couldn't understand it. He couldn't hear or see where it was going because he, he had seen it from the beginning. He just, you know, flat out said, frankly, Benji, I don't get it. He's like, you know, this is what Preservation Hall is and I just don't see it. It took me a long time, years, years before... George finally acknowledged. He said, you know, Benji, you were right. You saw it. You you saw it. I didn't see it and you saw it. That's the only and biggest compliment that I got and never got from George. It's a great feeling when, when you're respected by an elder and someone that you look up to and they acknowledge your work and your creativity. At that point, I felt like, oh, my father would have been okay with this. 
with my decisions, you know, some of them have been seen as kind of controversial in, in certain circles or turning our back on things. And truly it's, it's exactly the opposite. We actually, we went in even harder and deeper and went back to the source before truly, you know, this, this very important tradition disappeared. There's a lot to learn there. And Jay and I talk about that all the time. You know, the importance of, of keeping traditions alive, but not choking them to the point of suffocation. And how do you do that? How do you achieve it? And there's not a right way. There's not a wrong way. You just know through a lifetime what feels right and what is right. You know when it's when you have to, to adjust it and when you have to get it back in balance, you know, and we have to do that. This is a great time right now this you know because this past year has been a year of reflection for all of us and it's a great time to come back with all of the knowledge that we've gained over this past year through that reflection to actually implement that knowledge and and and, and make the adjustments and and do the work you know these moments you know in the great scheme of things they're passing moments they're just like we'll look back and we're like oh that that was a year and a half of my life you know this covid thing and we're all forever changed because of it. But what did we gain from it? What did, how did we come out of it? Did, did it break us or did we come out better? I can't let anything break my spirit, you know? When you try to break my spirit and you try to take my power, we're just gonna come back even bigger and harder and brighter. That's what we all wanna be a part of. I mean, that's, that's what Newport represents to me. That's what George represents to me. That's what Jay represents to me. That's what Preservation Hall represents to me. That's what the, this greater community represents to me is, you know, always keeping your head up, you know, through it all, just keeping your head up and, and going forward, just always moving forward. on the next episode of Festival Circuit, Newport Folk. All these artists love and respect each other. And then there's the one generation of artists with the younger generation of artists who are just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm standing here next to John Prine. John Prine's set. I don't think there was any musician at the festival that wasn't on stage. There were so many people around the whole back of the stage and up top and everyone was sitting down, like sitting cross-legged. And that felt like the closest that everybody could possibly get at that festival was all of us just watching that unfold. We'll take a deep dive into some of the most unforgettable collaborative moments at Newport from the thrill of being part of them. Well, we got a phone call from Jay, right? He said, I'm putting together a set with Roger Waters and my morning jacket. And Roger asked for some singers. And Jay said... I've got your girls. <laughs> yeah, we had a big rehearsal with my morning jacket and him. And about halfway through the first verse, he stops and he looks over at us and he yells across the room, man up. <laughs> and Jim chimes in, you know, oh, they're not on this song. And Roger goes, they're on every song. <laughs> <laughs> to the joy of witnessing them. Probably one of the most memorable moments was when uh, Dolly and Brandy were singing, uh, I will always love you and everyone bawling their eyes out, myself included. 
It was so emotional. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever forget that. Join us for episode three of Festival Circuit, Newport Folk. Festival Circuit Newport Folk is presented by Osiris Media, proud supporter of the Newport Festivals Foundation. I'm Carmel Holt. The series is co-written, co-produced, and edited by me and Julian Booker, who is also our audio engineer. Production assistance from Zach Brogan. Our executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Show logo and art by Mark Dowd. The series theme music is Ruminations Part 3, Afternoon Haze by Stephen Warwick. Thanks to Billy Glasner of the Newport Festivals Foundation for providing archival audio. Additional archival audio provided by the Alan Lomax Collection at the American Folklife Center, Library of Congress, courtesy of the Association for Cultural Equity. Many thanks to our folk family guests, Ben Jaffe, George Ween, Judy Collins, Phil and Brad Cook, Carrie Estrin, Amy Ray, Emily Saliers, Jim James, Jay Sweet, Christian Matson, Margot Price, Brittany Howard, Danny Clinch, Jess Wolf, Holly Lasick, and Yola. And with special gratitude to Executive Director Jay Sweet for his guidance and support. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. I'm your host, Carmel Holt. See you next time on Festival Circuit, Newport Folk. Osiris. <laughs>